factors of the first meditative absorption counteracting our five hindrances. The first, the, the first, second and third one of the factors of absorption counteract sloth and torpor, skeptical doubt and ill will. The fourth one arises as a factor of absorption simultaneously with the pleasant feeling. And in Pali it's called Sukha, which can be translated as happiness, but I think a better translation is joy, inner joy. Naturally, when one has very delicate and delightful feelings, sensations within, one feels joyful about that. It's quite impossible not to. So this arises at the same time. However, the uh, physical feeling, the sensation of well-being, of lightness, of uh, pleasurable sensation, is stronger than the emotion in the beginning anyway, so that the first instance the attention is on that pleasurable feeling. The joy is more or less in the background, but it has arisen at the same time. Now this joy counteracts our fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry or anxiety. And from that we can see that our restlessness particularly is generated by the fact that we haven't got what we want. We are not satisfied. We want something else. Restlessness shows itself in wanting something new, different. And we try to bring into our lives different experiences, maybe of a different country or the experiences of different, knowing different people, different books, new books, maybe even learning something new, changing one's profession, going to visit other places, seeing movies or television. The restlessness within may not be at all acknowledged, but it is our constant search for something else. If we were totally satisfied, totally at ease, our mind would not go outward. We wouldn't get distracted in meditation. The reason the mind thinks and tries to bring up new ideas 
because it isn't contented. At the time of meditative absorption, when this pleasant feeling concomitant with the joy has arisen, obviously the mind is totally contented and it doesn't go outward into thinking, otherwise it couldn't be absorbed. The two are mutually exclusive. It's either absorbed or it thinks. It doesn't think because it's contented. It has what it wants. It has inner joy. Restlessness at the time, during the time of meditation, therefore, is automatically stopped. It has its residue in our daily living. Again, we know we can get back to that. Once having been able to become more skillful at it, so that at will we can do it, we don't have to search for other satisfactions. They come our way anyway. We have good enough karma, otherwise we wouldn't live in an affluent society and on top of that have the chance to have a spiritual discipline if we didn't have very good karma. So outside satisfactions come our way automatically. We are so used to them, we take them so much for granted that we don't even notice them. For instance, we always have enough to eat. We always have medicine when we need it. We always have a roof over our head. So these outer satisfactions which are necessities for our lives and are given to us in abundance are due to our good karma and because we are so used to them we don't even feel joyful about them. On the contrary, should any one of these obvious things be missing in our lives we get upset uncomfortable other satisfactions also come to us but we don't have to spend time and energy to look for them curiosity is almost eliminated because what is there to be curious about it's all within out there it's repetitive so we have a residue of this it's not eliminated the restlessness it's interesting to note that restlessness is one of the ten fetters which is only eliminated when a person becomes fully enlightened. So there's always an inner residue of it, but we have counteracted effectively. 
there's hardly any other possibility of doing that. It is so subtle, but so pervading within, that we're not even aware of it. And as we become aware of it, we think it is a necessary part of being a human being, more experiences. Some people make that their life objective, to get as many experiences as possible. It's not quite as fashionable anymore as it was about ten years ago. But we think this is part of being alive, to go out and do and see and become and get, which is all that underlying restlessness. So this is not totally eliminated, but it's certainly counteracted because of having had this ability and have, it, have that ability again and again to find inner joy when one wants it. Now these, all these aspects that I've been talking about are part of the f- fine material absorptions. And their name in Pali, Rupa Jhana, Rupa is body or material, corporality. Their name denotes something quite important. We are, in our ordinary way of being, quite capable of initial and sustained application. For instance, if we study for a degree. We have to have initial and sustained application, otherwise we'll never make it. We are familiar with very pleasant physical feelings. We are also familiar with joy. We can have that. And these are part of the desirable aspects of our being. However, the, all of these matter, all of these four factors which I've mentioned just now and which are available to us in ordinary life are always dependent upon something outside of us. And since we don't have jurisdiction over that, we have practically no control over inside of us at this point what to say about outside of us. We are dependent, which means we are a slave to them. But there's more to that. Those aspects, those four factors, which do arise in ordinary human life, do neither have they the quality nor the quantity that arises in the meditative absorption. The pleasant feeling doesn't have any comparison in daily life or in our um, experience of it to the one we can have in meditative absorption and the same holds true for the joy. The reason for that is that these are pure experiences they have no, no basis on wanting or becoming 
on getting or keeping. Their purity lies in the fact that they are based strictly on a concentrated mind which at that time is totally pure. A concentrated mind is totally pure as long as it's concentrated. Now the nature of the mind is that. The nature of the mind is luminous, pliable, lustrous, expansive, all-embracing. Our natural way of being is not knowing that. So when through the concentration we have touched upon this pure nature of mind, the resultant of this joy or pleasant feeling is far greater because it is based on purity. Even if it happens only for one second, it's still based on purity. So while all these factors are not unfamiliar to us, they do not have that kind of strength when we experience them in our ordinary consciousness. The fourth hindrance is called restlessness and worry. The Buddha compares that to being a slave, not having control. When the restlessness arises, we are pushed in the direction wherever that curiosity takes us. And worry is the same way. Um, Worry is about, very often about the future, most of the time. Sometimes about the past, about omissions and commissions of the of the past. But most of the time, we are worrying about the future, whether we're going to get what we want, and whether we'll be able to keep what we've got. It's a totally useless enterprise, as we can all in intellectually agree because the person that is worrying about this future is not the one that's going to experience the future we are constantly changing and if we keep on thinking about the future worrying or not thinking about it we cannot experience the present because our mind is otherwise occupied We've only got one mind. We can't split it into bits and pieces. If it's occupied with what's going to happen to us, how can we be aware of what's actually happening? So we are missing out on being alive. And this is so much the um, way that humanity lives And it is such a habitual way of being, and everybody else is like that too, that we forget to notice it. That's the way it is. But it doesn't have any resultant which can be used for our own growth, nor for our own happiness. There's nothing in it except this kind of 
conceptualizing of what it could be like if and when. Now this does not preclude that we can make plans. Making a plan is doing it this moment. It's like making a shopping list. You're doing it this moment. You don't stand there with your shopping list in your hand. This ring or, or about it, are they going to have my brand of toothpaste? Is the bread gone up in price? Will I be able to find all the things that are on this list? How long is it going to take me? Can I get there uh, without any accident? If I should have an accident, who am I going to call? What am I going to do if the car doesn't start? It's got a shopping list. You put it down on the table. When it's time to buy the stuff, you take it in hand and do it. It's the same with our future. You can make a shopping list and put it down and forget about it until it's time to do each step that needs to be done. But to sit there, and this is what happens in meditation, as you well know, and have ideas and plans and hopes and wishes and worries about the future takes away the possibility to gain inner joy in the present. Now, the, all the factors of the meditative absorption exist within us. We can't put them in there. They are there. We've got to give up the future and the past, and we've got to give up our restlessness of wanting something other than what we've got, and we can touch upon it. It's all there. Where would else would it be if it wasn't within Enlightenment is within, we just can't get at it because we have overlaid it with our defilements, the hindrances, the underlying tendencies. So we can't see it. But where else could it be? It can't be out there somewhere or in a shrine or in a statue or in wells. It can only be within. By the same token, the factors of the meditative absorption, the uh, delight or the bliss and the joy are all existing in here. It seems a great shame to live a whole life without becoming aware of them and having the benefit of the uh, ability to be with them, to have them as one's companion whenever one wants them. It does appear as if in the Buddha's time people were quite capable of gaining this absorption more easily than today. The reason I'm saying that is that the Buddha did not go into such elaborate explanation as I'm doing it. He just said, this is the way it is. This is the first, second, third, fourth. This is what you experience. Now go and do it. He never went into this elaboration of detail. Now there's a possibility that the detail might have got lost. But I'm inclined to, to this 
is a personal opinion, by the way, that I'm voicing right now, to the personal opinion that people were more able to do it. Another interesting fact, which I think is quite important to know, although it won't help you to get there, but it is a fact which I think illustrates these absorptions, is that the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages were all doing it. The books we have today show that quite clearly in the most elaborate detail. It also got lost in Christianity. There is a very tentative movement to revive it. The Christian mystics used different terminology. Prayer and contemplation, where contemplation means our meditation. But it's exactly the same pathway. The same pathway of losing the self. They were after exactly the same thing and voiced it in the same words. Examples are St. Teresa de Avila, nine volumes, Meister Eckhart, at innumerable, I don't know how many, 16 or more volumes, Francis de Osula, John of the Cross, many more, Taula, many, many more. One doesn't have to read them all. But if this is of, if there's an inner urge to realize what this is all about, it is most interesting to see that, they, that all mystics of all ages, wherever, whenever, doesn't matter what nationality, what religion they followed. All went along this path for the elimination of the self-illusion. The one who gives the most exact instructions is Francis de Osuna. His book was the first time in the Middle Ages that the prayers of the Franciscans were written in Spanish other than in Latin and his book became a bestseller. He has more than one book but one of them particularly was a bestseller in those days which is interesting because even then this was a bit of a like secret but mysticism does not mean mystery and it does not mean secret mysticism is the ability of one's heart and mind to leave the ordinary everyday type of thinking and verbalizing and connection leave that behind and get to that point of inner purity where there is no wanting and becoming where there is only being 
and having touched upon being everything looks a little different and I can assure you from my personal experience that every single person whose mind is not um, impaired human being that whose mind is in order can do it one does not have to be a spiritual genius those that are spiritual geniuses show us the path but we can all follow it if an ordinary person like all of us are could not do it the Buddha would have wasted his time he taught for 45 years until the age of 80 actually even still on his deathbed every single day and he taught ordinary people like ourselves he didn't teach anyone special whoever wanted to be taught was welcome some of those people of course had long lifetimes of practice behind them but some did not some were kings and ministers and some were street sweepers and barbers Barbara was in those days a very low class occupation prostitutes anyone was welcome and he taught this pathway to everyone that not everyone is then able to follow it is a matter of determination of priorities of giving one's time and energy people have lots of other priorities that's a matter one has to decide for oneself the um, restlessness and worry was described by the Buddha also as a water pond in which the water was churning as if there was a underneath a, a spring or something water was churning one couldn't see one's likeness in other words it's very difficult in fact it's impossible to see our difficulties when we are enmeshed in them it's uh, at that time when we have them we can no longer see that this is something that we could get rid of we can't even see how we get rid of it this particular one the restlessness one the worry one is easier to, un to uh, notice in oneself but the restlessness one is not so easy to find because everybody does it it's so common that we can't even have any kind of um, mirror the only time we would ever notice it if we meet up with somebody who hasn't got it that's the only time then we would think that that person is either peculiar or um, advanced or um, different but it might still not dawn on us that what that person actually has is inner contentment and therefore no restlessness so when we're in, in within those um, states 
we don't see ourselves. It's also one of our very um, pronounced difficulties that we're all wearing blinkers as far as we ourselves are concerned. We can't remove them just because we want to, if we even knew that they were there. It's a matter of a slow, gradual progression within. The fifth factor of the um, meditative absorption is one-pointedness. Now, that's a matter of course. If we're not one-pointed, we couldn't possibly be absorbed. It means that the mind is staying in one spot. It's not going anywhere. And naturally, if it does, that's when we experience the joy and the bliss for whatever time the mind can be one-pointed if it stays one-pointed for one minute well that's what we experience if it stays one-pointed for an hour well that's what we experience it does become much much easier with practice and time having touched upon it having got in there into this house and then practicing again and again the house becomes familiar like the house that one lives in with one's body I'm sure you could all go to your own homes and if the electricity was cut off and you haven't got a torch in hand you could still find most of the things that you need in the pitch dark. You'd find your bed, you'd know where the fridge is, and so on. You know your way around your own home. Well, it's the same with this. Once one gets acquainted with these states, does it over and over again, it becomes a home for the mind. One becomes so familiar with it that it doesn't take any effort at all to wander around in it. And it is no longer, the electricity is no longer cut off because one knows exactly where everything is. It's a familiar scene. Just as at the moment, the thinking part is a familiar scene. It's familiar. So then, this experience becomes the same. I often call it having a home for the mind. You see, when one is out in one's daily activities in the world, let's say one works at a job or something, and then comes home and feels quite happy to leave all this hustle and bustle behind and relax it in a nice easy chair and has a nice meal and looks out the window and is quite happy that everything is behind one until the next morning the relaxation is very nice for the body it doesn't have to rummage around and do more work but it's very likely in fact it's sure 
that if the mind has not been trained enough it is still remembering the things that happened during the day repeating them possibly churning them over is making plans for the next day is worrying about whether everything worked out during the day the way it was supposed to tries to think of who one has to ring up remember things one has forgotten that one should take care of makes a list it's busy it hasn't got a home although the body is sitting quite peacefully in this armchair and the eyes are looking out at a nice view the mind still hasn't got home yet the mind is still working and that's why we're so dead tired at night most people do not do a great deal of physical work which would entail complete exhaustion in the evening there are some digging ditches cutting trees all sorts of things can be possible but most people don't do that and yet when it comes to evening time we're exhausted the mind is exhausted and rightly so it's been doing overtime from morning to night it doesn't have any proper working hours it doesn't have any union benefits at all it just keeps going 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 having been able to get to the meditative absorptions we've got the home for the mind that's where it can sit and relax that's where it can regenerate its energy that's where can it can enjoy its own being without having to become anything that's where it doesn't have to plan for anything new because it lost its restlessness at the time so this is then the only home that the mind will ever have where it can relax rest and be totally at ease without any outer influence disturbing it if we didn't have such a home for the body we would be quite disturbed we'd have to sit outside in the rain and the sun and be at the mercy of the elements when the mind hasn't got its home of the meditative absorption it's at the mercy of its own emotions reactions and thinking the mind is our jewel that needs to be looked after it's not that we need to neglect the body but if the mind is properly looked after the body gets its share automatically the one pointedness counteracts effectively the desire for sensual gratification we can't have two things in the mind at once it's either being one pointed or we would like to sit more comfortably we'd like to have something else for lunch we'd like to have 
concentration, we have to have something. But one point of mind doesn't want anything, otherwise it can't be one point. Now it counteracts sensual desire very effectively because, as I've already mentioned, when we realize that through the meditative approach we can get far greater joy and bliss and delight and we can through our senses. They lose their importance. They have a function, namely, in this life, they are needed to stay alive. If we have one sense missing, it's very difficult. If we're blind or deaf or sibling goes too, it's very difficult. So we are very fortunate to have our senses. But we should never regard them as more than just the necessary faculty for keeping ourselves alive as long as this body is in the earth. However, the whole world uses their senses as their means for satisfaction, which keeps our economy going. If that weren't so, we'd probably have to pack up. Since very few people do the meditative absorption compared to the billions that are on this globe, there's no fear that the economy is going to pass. <laughs> Whatever tastes good, smells good, looks good, and sounds good, is saleable. If it isn't, life doesn't get it. So that's how we keep going. But the satisfaction is lacking. Something in there says there must be something else. That can't be all. And that has been so since humanity has been writing down its experiences. Probably earlier than that, but we don't know. But ever since, we've got written records of humanity that have been the same. Man does not live by bread alone. He can be found anywhere. Any spiritual part with its name contains just that. Because every human being that ever starts thinking a little less than superficially, a little more, profoundly will know that this is gone. It can't just hinge on the five senses and the thinking of the sixth sense. There must be something else. However, in our day and age, the thinking has really taken over. Technology is only possible through the thinking. And for a while there, it was considered to be the answer to the human problem. I think that too has now disappeared that thought, although in some quarters it may still be rampant. But I think anybody who has taken any interest in it will know that it was a no solution. It does sometimes make life more comfortable. 
The one-pointedness of the mind, which makes it possible for us to gain that inner, inner joy, then has a residue in daily life, where we know quite clearly that the non-thinking, but the experiencing, was the cause for this inner happiness, and that it had absolutely nothing to do with any sense contact. Nothing at all was an inner experience which was due to concentration. It was nothing that came from outside, and it certainly had nothing to do with thinking. Having experienced that and doing it over and over again, having to be able to experience that more than once, makes it quite clear that whatever we can get through our senses, while it is gratifying, we can be grateful for the good parts of it, but it doesn't have that in it what we're looking for. We found it somewhere else. The Buddha compared the desire for sensual gratification with being in debt. You can compare that to having a huge mortgage on your house and having to go to the bank every month and pay it off with interest. Now, with a mortgage, it is possible that one may be able to pay that off in this life. With the desire for sensual gratification, if one doesn't put a deliberate stop to it, it's impossible to pay it off in this lifetime, one still would like it more comfortable on one's deathbed. So this is the debt that we are in. We are getting something, but immediately we have to go after it again. It doesn't last. And because it doesn't last, and we haven't seen that, that this is a useless endeavor, we keep on paying with interest again and again. Now, obviously, we can at one stage make a sort of stop to this. But without having something that takes its place, I would say totally and utterly impossible. One has to have something that takes the place of pleasant sense contact. And this, the meditative absorption, takes the place. To be able to say sense contacts do no longer interest me without having something else. Maybe there are such spiritual geniuses. I don't know. I haven't met them. But then, I have met that many people. The Buddha said himself that the sense pleasure in the Matimanikaya and the things, the sense pleasures are gross. But the pleasure of the meditative absorption are a pleasure I will allow myself. Because it gives the mind the necessary distance 
from all that which can disturb it. These five factors belong, so to say, to the very first step of the meditative approach and gradually become more and more refined. As one becomes more skilled at it, the initial application only takes one moment, one second. One just sits down and does it. The sustained application is something which is automatic because the mind has been trained now like the puppy dog that has come to here it now does follow don't have to start training it over and over again and so there are the following steps then this mansion with its eight chambers I have lifted that expression out of Teresa de Villa's book, The Imperial Castle, Instructions to Her Nuns. She calls the prayer stages a mansion with seven chambers. We could say seven also, but I like to make it eight to make it more explanatory. I'm mentioning that not particularly because I've taken out of that, but for the fact that you can have an inkling that this is not anything special. This is the way the human mind goes. The one-pointedness of mind, which counteracts our essential desires, gives us the ability to be one-pointed also in our understanding and daily living. Naturally, some of our daily living has to be concerned with everyday things. The Buddha also had to eat, to sleep, had to go to the toilet. He had to do all the things that we all do. But the way we look at them changes. None of these things become the object for being alive. They are only the sort of the skeleton which is necessary to 
look after them, they were burning. What we have, the less burning we are. Of the desire, of our essential desires, also can be seen. One moment we want this, another moment we want that. Our eyes, our physical eyes, have it in Well, you say that the person who invented the polio ex- uh, vaccine had creativity and imagination. Is that what you're saying? fallacy there because I would say that the person um, who invents a vaccine or any uh, scientific uh, matter would be a person, yes, curiosity would be part in it but he would have a very scientific mind which would be very logically inclined and um, he may even be fired by uh, the wish to help humanity So um, that's all very very well. Um, While we're on this path, uh, going along, we should be fired with the wish to help others because that again purifies ourselves. Without that purification of compassion, we uh, do not purify completely. The Buddha's compassion was in his teaching. He taught every single day for 45 years and uh, even when he wasn't physically well 
but the um, imagination and the creativity of a person need not be impaired if they are on a spiritual path on the contrary because there is no desire for having and becoming energies are freed and besides a person who has gained access to some insight a person whose mind is much clearer so creativity and uh, and intuitive living would be part of such a person it doesn't have any exclusiveness or that they are mutually exclusive if a person does something for other beings that's a very important thing to do on the spiritual path if one does it for wealth well that's not so wonderful for personal wealth so is that what you're asking about or asking you about are you asking about something else about why why people should make these um, why it is important to keep people alive or what no. <laughs> like I've heard before that the statement about don't worry about uh, the economy coming to an end because most people um, wouldn't get on the path they won't they just won't be on they won't get on the path well what I try sometimes to imagine is what would the world be like if they did it wouldn't change at all getting on the path hasn't changed a thing you've got to come to the end of the path to get changed very few people do <laughs> nothing changes <laughs> you might go to the health food shop instead of the supermarket <laughs> it might be one of the biggest changes <laughs> hmm? nothing changes the world is as it is and uh, it is easier to understand it more in depth when one can look at things in a universal light this is only one planet there is a universe on this planet are people and people are doing things but the Buddhist explanations were concerned with a total universe in which each of us is, uh, has a place and when we see it in that context it's a little easier to grasp where this path leads to but at the moment we're not at the end we're at the beginning of the path and one of the factors which are important for this path is that the Buddha said in the um, discourse on the transcendental dependent arising that we can't do our meditation properly unless we have joy the joy of the path the joy of the commitment the uh, joy of knowing that here is the absolute possible to gain 
if we are able to get that inner joy through the meditative absorption we are on a very good um, path but we need already the joy before we can get in there which is a worldly joy it's a joy from understanding that this is the best thing we can do this goes far beyond anything else that exists anywhere in the universe that joy helps us then to get into the meditative process where that inner joy arises so this is an important aspect of the beginning of the path we've got to enjoy it if we don't enjoy it we're definitely not going to stick to it the human being just isn't made that way most people are not massacred yes Uh, if a person gains absolute insight into impermanence that should be a moment of joy yes uh, or should be quite joyful because it shows that anything that one has ever worried about is nonsensical one doesn't need to worry about a thing but that would probably be a path moment uh, whether the, the trip to that path moment is joyful I don't know <laughs> in the explanations it isn't there are quite um, marked differences there's a very great fear moment in the, on the path without the uh, absorption but um, the end result uh, should be the same however it is so maybe very important to remember I have talked about the path on the, that the Christian mystics have taken. Maybe it is even more important to remember that this was the path that the Buddha has taken. He went through the eight meditative absorptions and learned them first through, from his teachers and then went off on his own to practice more and then when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in what is today Bodhgaya he did his absorptions in an orderly manner up to the eighth and down to the first and then came out with the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and also one could remember maybe that any discourse and practically all of them are like that um, the longer ones that by him that explain the path from where we're at now to enlightenment go via the absorption so that may be even more important to remember than that the Christian mystics also did it <laughs> uh, yes friend <laughs> I'm <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you're not an arahant yet. You see, I will, I will explain this um, probably during the course of this um, meditation course, how this works, but uh, since you're asking, I, I, I will answer you. The very first experience of non-self changes one, yes, but not dramatically enough yet to um, make all the changes that are necessary otherwise there wouldn't be four stages of this the very first step of experiencing non-self releases three fetters the skeptical doubt in oneself and in the Buddha's teaching skeptical doubt in what one ought to be doing skeptical doubt also in the priorities that's released the um, intellectual understanding of oneself is changed completely but the feeling is not one has to in order to get back to the feeling of non-self resurrect it deliberately by resurrecting the in one's memory the moment when it happened it isn't natural yet in other words, at this point in time, I'm sure you know that you are Frank and that you're sitting there, right? Okay, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> now, in order to get rid of that for a moment, one has to resurrect the experience that one had because it's a very impressive experience, so one can easily resurrect it. But in order to feel like that, one has to do that. Only on the following stages, not even the next one, but the third one, is it an almost automatic, almost automatic feeling that there's nobody sitting here, almost. So, obviously, because one has an intellectual understanding of this whole business, one has become, one has understood something which is like turning the whole thing upside down or around, but the feeling isn't there. And the, the third thing that one loses is this belief in rites and rituals, if one's ever had it. Um, we also have beliefs in rites and rituals. It's not that one can't perform them. It's only that one doesn't believe that they are um, so valuable that they will bring one enlightenment. Hate and greed hasn't been touched yet. So, what is there to say? It hasn't been touched yet. <laughs> no, but the thing is also that having seen it, one can't be stopped from practicing. Having seen that this is so, that, and practicing does not just mean meditating, one can't be stopped from going further. It is, one is now in that stream of going. So this is a very important aspect, you know, it's a very, very um, important experience.
Yes. And if someone has an experience in a past life, he has to rediscover it in this life? That particular experience, no, you bring that with you. You bring that with you. Well, you might have to rediscover the past, but it won't be very difficult. That's something that the mind brings along. So, it is said that a person who has become a stream enterer only has seven more lives until enlightenment. But uh, one can also, of course, do it all in one life. Yes. The one does not imply the other. The one does not imply the other. Um, you see, it is possible to gain access to that particular experience through, although a meditative process, where the mind has not yet gained the ability to be totally absorbed. It, it may, the mind may have gained the ability to understand perfectly and because of constant practice has removed itself from worldly concerns. So the two are not synonymous or even uh, work together. The person who gets into the first absorption does not necessarily become a streamer, not at all. And neither does a streamliner necessarily do the first absorption. But the, uh, the moment of gaining access is an absorbed state, but it's different from absorption. So the, you see, the absorptions are, the, are a pathway. A pathway which brings one the greatest benefits. And for people, who are practicing quite um, um, sincerely, they would mean that they are able to leave the world aside even though living in the world. In other words, it doesn't mean one gives up one's job or one's family, but one doesn't have to be so much concerned. In a monastic life, it would also be extremely helpful to have that because one has a substitute. But it's not necessary that a stream winner does the absorption. There are also small stream winner and ordinary stream winner, a chula satapana and all sorts of different kinds. <laughs> and one of the uh, very great uh, helps for a stream winner if we to become a chula satapana, a small stream winner, is absolute and utter faith in the Buddha's teaching. That is a very great help. It opens the heart and it also opens the mind to accept and understand the non-self aspect. Anything else? How did we get over here? Yes? Well, some people, you mean the experience of the meditation, or what? Or the experience of the non-self, or what? 
No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. <laughs> I said that some people are enormously helped to become a small stream enterer through their unwavering faith. Some people become a, get their faith when they have become a stream enterer. All sorts of possibilities. The only thing to do is to do it. It works both ways. It's a possibility of having it work both ways. You see, there are such people who first of all may have had this teaching in many past lives and when they recognize it again they say, oh hey, I know that. Sure, that's right. And they haven't even heard it yet. But it's an, like a an past memory coming up without being aware of that. There are people who hear it and say, without having done anything, they say, that sounds good. That's what I'm going to do. And there are others who practice and practice and practice and uh, keep saying, well, maybe, maybe, but I want to be shown. Maybe. So there are all sorts of different ways of approaching this. A person who has very strong faith is helped greatly. But you can't want that faith. It either has there or this. And why it arises in one person and not in another, it's also hard, hard to say. Past experience, things like that. Anything else? Yes. I don't think I've understood a single word. A little louder. Oh, rites and rituals, yes. Well, just as in the Christian church, with which you must be familiar, there are rites and rituals also in the Buddhist uh, uh, religion. And some people undoubtedly believe that they are very important. A stream enterer no longer believes that. Yes, for a stream enter, keeping the precepts is no longer a problem. It's automatic. That's not a right of ritual. <laughs> Does it help you to become a stream enter? I see what you mean, yes. I don't think that they believe, uh, from my experience of 10 years Sri Lanka, I don't believe that they think that keeping the sila and giving the dana is going to take them to Nibbana. None of them have any idea like that. Um, they hope, quite rightly so, that with keeping sila, and giving dana, they are making merit. And that with that merit, they may get a better rebirth. And that's all they believe. 
surely they don't think in fact in Sri Lanka the thought is quite rampant that um, it is at this time uh, impossible to attain Nibbana that uh, the times have gone to such a um, unfavorable conditions and no Buddha but that is a mis- misunderstanding so they, they do Sila and Dana because that is going to be Punya merit that's right a stream entry should have no problem keeping the five precepts it's uh, because of that intellectual understanding uh, which is very clear to that person but the feeling isn't there a big difference from the next step on the third step the feeling is almost Ha, 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 ha.